Hello, and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we talk about the strange, the bizarre, and the avant-garde films of the VHS era. My name is Luke, and I'm joined by Leland. Listeners, if you at home want to be berated by the lamest MC of the apocalypse for wasting the precious remaining moments of your loveless, irradiated existence by listlessly vegetating in front of the most wooden, hardcore pornography ever filmed inside a bank vault. Then, as of this broadcast, you can find the full, uncensored version of 1982's Cafe Flesh on VHS or DVD for an amount of cash money that'll make you wince. As if a large roll of quarters with the body of a man dumped a huge load of spare change right into your eyes. Alternatively, if you are a disenchanted sex negative, unburdened by the carnal temptations of digital flesh, then perhaps the film may be found on a popular streaming porn site. But which one? That is your quest to undertake. And once that quest is complete, then you, like us, can feel your libido melt away as if irrevocably damaged by a tragic nuclear catastrophe. Wow, yeah, that was really harsh. I, I, I feel like there was just bitterness exuding from that description. Yes, uh, my apologies in advance. I'm going to be the stick in the mud for this episode. All right, well, I certainly am not. Uh, tonight, if you didn't already figure it out, we're talking about 1982's Cafe Flesh, the avant-garde erotic film by Steven Syadian, also known as Rince Dream. He would later come out, well, he's only done one non-pornographic film that I know of, and that's a film he made a few years after this called Dr. Caligari, which is sort of a spiritual sequel to the original Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, but with the same surreal stylings as what we watched tonight. Laser Graves did a good episode of it, so go go and check them out. But I know him best for this film and for the first film he was involved in, uh, Night Dreams. Leland, this is your first exposure to Mr. Rent's dream, correct? Yes. And would you seek out his other films based on this experience? I would not be in a rush to go out and catch his films. But like I mentioned, these films go for a lot of money online. Yeah, they're really they're really desired. Like people love these movies. So really your best bet to even see this would be to borrow a copy, have someone who knows someone who already has one or get lucky and find one streaming. Yeah, I think that um Dr. Caligari goes for reasonable money, like 30 bucks. I think I paid about 150 for my copy of Night Dreams on VHS. I, I think that's about an average price. I tried to actively look for any um, sales of this movie, and I did come across a two-pack of Cafe Flesh and that film for about 200 and something. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right. But then I tried to just look for a cheaper DVD, and I mean, I probably don't. I'm not looking in the right places, but there there were a lot of sites that would sell them for like 30, 30 a pop. 
but they didn't have any in stock. So, so let's talk a little bit about Rent's dream before we get into the movie. So he started his career, I think, as kind of a a visual artist. Um, I, I know he did some avant-garde theatrical work in New York. Um, he worked at, at Hustler magazine, but doing like set design. And he wanted to do these really bizarre, outlandish, complex sets, really reminiscent of what's in this movie. And I think you know, I'm not that familiar with Hustler magazine, but I think some of it they went along with, some of it they didn't. But through that, he met Jerry Stahl, with whom he co-wrote this movie. And Jerry Stahl went on to do a lot of mainstream work. Like he worked on, I know he worked on ALF as a, as a writer, but um, I can't remember any others off the top of my head. And then I already mentioned Rent's Dream he, I think he's made like eight to 10 movies, but the only semi-mainstream one, and that's really stretching it, is Dr. Caligari. Did you recognize any of the actors in this film? No, not off the top of my head. So our main female lead, Lana, is played by Michelle Bauer, although she's not credited as that. I think she she's credited in this movie as Pia Snow. She went on to do a lot of horror movies in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, she did a lot of films for David Dakota, who was like he directed a lot of Full Moon's output. But she's kind of known along with like Linnea Quigley as being an 80s, 90s scream queen. So she's she's worth mentioning. And then I had no idea that this is who this was, but we have a brief scene of like a stand-up guy in this movie. And this is played by Richard Belzer, who is most famous for being on Law and Order. Dun dun. Yeah, he's he's the guy on Law and Order who like always wears dark tinted glasses and black suits. I mean, he probably looked pretty young for this film. Yeah, he doesn't look like himself, but that's just interesting to note. Apparently, he was a stand-up comedian at the time this film came out, and that's how he got in this role. Um, the only other person I recognize is the actress who plays Moms, Tantala Ray. She was in a lot of older, more avant-garde erotic cinema. I know like a lot of her output was put out by Alpha Blue Archives, if you're familiar with them. They do some of your stranger adult entertainment. But with overall, what did you think of the acting in this movie? There's acting in this film? You don't think there's any good performances in this movie? Uh, you know, maybe, maybe like Teenage Tupelo. I'm missing some kind of back catalog of media to like understand the end. i i don't think that's true i i think most of the acting in this movie is it is bad to awful with a few mediocre cases but i think that andy nichols who plays max melodramatic is really superb oh gross. i think that's a great performance no nah, well it, it's no? a performance um really i feel like this entire film 
was just an excuse to put out the avant-garde set pieces that are are spread out among the film's runtime and everything in between is just transitory nonsense that doesn't really matter so i don't think that's untrue but there are reasons why i think this performance is great so let me backtrack a little because we have not talked about this the plot or anything this film takes place in the future after a nuclear holocaust and the world is divided between sex positives and this is the minority of people who can still have sex and sex negatives who become violently ill at the touch of another person. And so all of the sex positives are forced to perform in adult clubs for the sex negatives to watch. And this is the only way they have of experiencing like erotic intimacy. And Max Melodramatic is the MC or the host at one of these clubs, the Cafe Flesh. And his, most of his shtick is to like berate and make fun of and tease the audience. But the reason why I think this performance is so good is that while he's doing that, the emotions that he has are so evident. Like it's so clear to me that he is not just berating the audience because he's like a cruel person. He is, he is frustrated and he is bitter about his situation. We learn later in the film that he is, he is a sex positive, but he also had an injury that left him impotent. And so he's kind of straddling both worlds and that's a really uncomfortable place for him to be where like he fits in with nobody. And I just think he does. I, I think Andy Nichols, who was not in that many films does a great job of communicating those emotions. Like there's no point where I'm not perfectly clear what this character is thinking and feeling. And I don't know if he's written that way. Like, I don't know if this is good writing so much as it is good acting. Maybe Nichols is bringing more to the movie than it deserves. I, I don't know. Well, he certainly portrays annoying very well. But, like, his entire role in the movie is to just constantly shit on the audience. And by extension, he's I feel like he's shitting on the viewer for, like, just bothering to show up for, like, what what can only be described as like porn for people who huff nitrous from expired whipped cream cans. Like, I, I don't really know. I think there's a meaningful reason for that, but I'm going to save that till the end because I think there's, I think there's some real satire going on in this film. Let's play the trailer. And then I don't think we're going to do a walkthrough so much this week as just get into some of these particular scenes, but let's play the trailer and then, and then we'll get into it. This is actually not a trailer. It's the first two minutes of the film. Right. So this is like the credit sequence with some narration and some, uh, the, the, the title, the theme song, which I should mention, um, the score for this movie is performed by Mitchell Froom, who I really didn't 
know much about. He's only released a few albums, but I like his work here. So you'll hear a touch of it in this clip. to exist, to sense, to feel everything but pleasure. In a world destroyed, a mutant universe, survivors break down to those who can and those who can't. 99% are sex negatives. Call them erotic casualties. They want to make love, but the mere touch of another makes them violently ill. The rest, the lucky 1%, are sex positives those whose libidos escaped unscathed. After the nuclear kiss, the positives remain to love, to perform. And the others, well, we negatives can only watch, can only come to cafe flesh. So Leland, regardless of how you feel about the movie, what do you think of that plot setup? Like, do you think that's interesting? So this film came out kind of like at the tail end of like the golden age of pornography right like that that age where you had producers writers directors trying to find or integrate like quality cinematic narratives within the genre so i haven't seen any of these films and I think most people of our generation haven't, but we recognize the titles. So you got like Debbie Does Dallas, Deep Throat. Um, I think one is like about beyond, beyond the Green Door or Opening the Green Door. Like uh, these are movies that tried to, or maybe they did succeed. I, I don't know because I, I can't critique them. I haven't seen them myself. But they tried to to marry the idea that you can have a serious cinematic experience combined with pornography and cafe flesh feels like it's trying to carry on that legacy but with the sci-fi vibe that said i i think it feels like a miss overall this on, on one hand you can say all right this is pornography the plot is just a setup it's not really supposed to mean that much but that era of of erotic entertainment didn't really exist. Like it wasn't that bare bones 
until I don't know, like the mid or late eighties. That's when that's when porn studios just started churning out whatever for just like erotic consumption, right? I don't know a lot about the history of pornography, but I do want to come back to where I think Rent's Dream fits into that. But first, I'll just say that I'm just evaluating this plot not in the context of it being an adult film, but just as an idea. I think it raises really interesting questions about human nature. And I think that it touches in a satirical way on the relationship that people have to erotic film or magazines or whatever they're looking at where they're only observing. And I think that this this is what I was getting at earlier with Max Melodramatic like berating the audience is I think this film is trying to berate the viewer. And it's it's trying to attack the idea that you can play a passive role in sexuality that you can you can just be an observer and like that that's somehow going to sustain your human needs i i think the film is saying that that's an impossible thing to do and and it's I, i maybe i'm projecting too much on rent's dream but I've seen a few of his other films and those ideas seem to be in line with his ideas. And so, so that's my read on it. So like, regardless of how successful the film is, I think that this is a really interesting story idea. This might be an a la carte situation here where like, you know, I might've seen way too much in, into that film, although I still love it and I stand by my opinion of it, except now the, the shoe's on the other foot. This, this is your a la carte. You're going to overanalyze the shit out of this. And that's fine. I think that's great. Um, maybe. maybe. Here's how, here's what the point I was getting at is, right? So the, the two ways I consider looking at this film is let's say you try to look at it as as just a a piece of pornographic film, right? It it fails there, in my opinion, because the eroticism, the quality, is just not there. Um, we're not really going to get into that on this broadcast, but there, there there is of course a lot of subjectivity as far as aesthetics and eroticism, but I I think it falls flat on its face in that regard. But two, let's say you want to just look at it as a plot standpoint, right? And you want to just see the, the eroticism as a means to an end or just as a, a way to link the scenes together, right? Then I just want to, to I'll just take, take this moment now to make it clear that I don't even think this premise really vibes like from a logical standpoint. Like, like you're telling me a bunch of people who get physically ill for initiating any kind of physical intimacy are going to want to crowd together and, and watch other people fool around. Like that, that doesn't make sense to me. It makes sense to me because it's about longing to satisfy the, the, natural urge people have for companionship whether that's erotic or romantic or just like touching another human but for whatever reason they cannot access it 
And I don't think it's that different from people feeling the urge to watch pornography or eroticism. And I think that's the point that the film is making is that there's not that much of a difference. Like the person watching porn is just as impotent as the audience members here. I disagree because most of the time when you're watching pornographic material, there is some interaction there. Well, let, so the one thing that I think is really successful in this film that like you, you fail to mention is, is the set design and the visuals and the costuming. And like, to me, this is like watching avant-garde New York underground cinema or underground um, stage performance, right? Underground theater. I don't even can like, I don't even think of this film from an erotic perspective and whether it fails or succeeds in that regard means nothing to me. Like, I could just look at the visuals of this film and be artistically satisfied. There are so many images from this film that I'll never forget that are like in, in night dreams is the same way. And so is Dr. Caligari where they're like burned into my mind. Speaking of which the opening scene is one of them. I'm just going to try to describe this scene, right? We've got three men who are dressed like baby cavemen sort of. And they're in giant high chairs playing with bones. And then you've got a woman who's introduced as a housewife. She's sitting in her chair reading a magazine. And then we have a milkman show up who's dressed as a rat. And he does like a dance across the room carrying his bottles of milk. And then they start like he seduces her and they start to get it on. Like regardless of the the erotic merit of this scene, what how did you feel about it? Yeah, my my first impression was that we're off to a running start with proto furries. Like obviously this movie came out before like the furry movement, but you know I can't I can't help but draw that connection right off the bat. You but know, there's a lot more than that going on in this scene, right? Yeah, right. Like it it looks like the worst room from from the from Disney's carousel of progress, right? It's like this 1950s like aesthetic with like, you know, the rug, the table lamp, like the, the props in the background, the furniture. Um, and, and then there's <laughs> like these voyeurism monster babies in the background with bones instead of rattles that, you know, that when it get there, there's like a midway point in the scene where the rat starts getting its tail involved and it's kind of like that scene from from Jacob's Ladder where like Jacob's girlfriend is grinding on that demon uh, in the club. And that's actually a really good comparison. And, and, but, you know, I, I would say that both of those scenes are basically equivalent in eroticism. <laughs> and well, that's not a good thing when you're creating a pornographic film. So do you like do you see this this aesthetic as that different than like the avant-garde set design in Forbidden Zone? Oh, that's a good comparison. Because um, like I would put both I would put both Richard Elfman and Rince Dream in the same artistic like venue. I, I I think they're both inspired by that 1970s New York underground avant-garde theater. That's a good point. And and I can see where you're coming from. 
but but I I didn't get the the same vibes. Like I I feel like Forbidden Zone you can you can you can analyze it and get some some kind of like greater meaning out of it maybe. But it's also not trying to pass itself off as as again like pornography. Like I so don't so yeah. To come back to that, so I'm I haven't found a lot of interviews where Rent's Dream. And I'm referring to him by that because that's the name he uses when he's directing. And plus, I just think it's, it's genius. There, I didn't see a lot of interviews with him talking about the inspiration behind this movie. But I've heard conflicting things that he, he started to work at Hustler because prior to Hustler, he was doing like he was designing movie posters, a lot of mainstream films. And I think he continued to do that even as he was directing. He was doing avant garde theater and, and like making no money and not getting his true artistic vision out there. And so the only place he found that was at all welcoming of that was Hustler and was in adult entertainment. And so that's how he like segued into the world of directing erotic films. I, I don't think it was that important to him, but I've also read that, and we were talking about this before the recording that he, when he was trying to get financing for the film, he only showed the non sexual scenes in order to get investors on board. And my the way I reconcile those two things is I think when he was trying to find investors, he was just being smart and like playing to his audience, right? And it, it's easier maybe to find big budget investment for a mainstream film. But when it came to meeting collaborators and a studio and actors who would work with him and who were all on like the wavelength of what he was trying to do, he found that in the adult cinema world. And so I think the I think that if he could have gotten away with doing a film that did not have any pornographic content but did have this budget, then I think he would have done it. Because as you said, the the sex scenes in this film feel kind of beside the point. Like my my hard hitting in investigative journalism, which was basically just opening Wikipedia, mentioned that the director, I mean, I guess, I guess Wikipedia, who knows if it's true, uh, mentioned that the director sent out footage that did not contain any erotic material in order to pick up funding for this film. How does that fit in, assuming it's true? Well, I think it, I think it probably is true, but for example, he he made this film, he made this film with Jerry Stahl, right? And my understanding is he met Jerry Stahl at Hunt, at at Hustler, and he had a co-director, Mark Esposito, who I also think came from the adult film world, and he had collaborated with some of these actors before in the adult film world, and, and so I think that the adult nature of the film mostly came down to the collaborators and like the world he was coming from. But I think he wanted the big budget investment that would have been associated with a non-pornographic film. 
you know, we probably should have mentioned this earlier, but there actually is a non-pornographic version of this film. What, that you can, like, find on YouTube? Yeah, well, not on YouTube. It's on Vimeo, but apparently that's also the version that you can potentially see, uh, or I guess at some points could see on television because it takes out all of the erotic material, but then yeah. you don't really know what's left. Maybe they leave in the nudity, but then remove just anything super graphic. Yeah, so we talked about Max Melodramatic. What do you think about the other characters in the film? Um, all right. Uh, the, the the main guy, I think his Dick. name is Dick. Yeah, dude, that dude looks like Charlie Kirk from uh, Turning Point America. You know what I'm talking about? No. All right. He, he's, he's from a, uh, a conservative think tank slash... Um, super pack and he gets memed on all the time because his face is slightly smaller than his head like than what it should be and i swear to god nick's face fucking shrinks a little bit in every subsequent scene Uh, i didn't notice that greatly but i should say here that i think the guy who plays nick is a bad actor Uh, look what he has to work with his character sucks (laughs) yeah he kind of does so nick is played by paul McGibbony, and um and this is the only movie he was ever in oh no and yeah so his character is basically like i can't take it anymore you know i'm too frustrated and he doesn't he kind of fits your your expectation that you had earlier like he does not want to keep going to cafe flesh because he's just too frustrated but his wife lana she's really into it and this is Michelle Bauer. She wants him to keep going. So they have a couple scenes where they like argue about this. And for whatever reason, Max really hates Nick. Like they have a thing going on. But so there's Nick and Lana. They're like our main characters. And then there's Angel. Angel's like a new girl who came from Wisconsin. And she's portrayed as like really innocent. But see, she's hiding a secret. Because everyone thinks she's a sex negative, but she's actually a sex positive and she's hiding. And these guys show up, the enforcers who like wear masks, and their job is to track down any sex positives and force them to enlist in the performances. What did you think of this side plot? Do you think this would be a good double feature with uh, Children of Men? I've thought, I actually thought of that connection. I mean, there are other movies where, like, the world is impotent. I, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I know I've seen it done. But, yeah, it, it they have plot relationships. Yeah, that's that's the first thing I started thinking about when, 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 the, when the police showed up. But, like, there's a scene after they take Angel where Moms, a character who owns the club that we haven't spoken about yet, is, is talking to Lana and trying to rationalize why it's okay for the sex negatives to basically enslave the sex positives. Right. And she makes this case that like, it has to be like this or the world would cease to function. In the same line of dialogue, she also mentions that this catastrophe has only been around for five years, five years. And it's this bad already socially, but like, the, the governments 
priority I'm assuming here is to keep pumping out sex propaganda to keep everyone's spirits up. Like, why is this the focus and not some kind of like government eugenics program to like ensure the survival of the species? Because if you have 99% of the human race unable to reproduce, that is, that is a surefire way to become extinct. Like, well, I think but, that, that is, that is like a real dystopian porn theme for you, right? Like, you know, the, the, uh, some kind of fascist government in the wake of a catastrophe, like kidnapping people for a eugenics program. Like there, there you go. That's a lot better than hiding out in a bank vault and, and watching weird ass shit on a stage. <laughs> but, but see, we don't like that could be going on, right? For all we know, the government in this world has come up with a way to grow babies in test tubes, like Brave New World, and they don't like sex is not necessary for reproduction. Uh, we don't know. Yeah. Right. So what I'm saying here is, you know, I might be coming off the back of 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 reading Dune, which is like the gold standard of sci-fi world building, and and then coming into Cafe Flesh, and I feel like. You know, maybe they could have fleshed out the backstory a little more. All right, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, that's a fair point, but um, it, it's, it doesn't bother me. So let's talk about moms a little bit. So at one point, she says that she used to be Mildred. I think that was her name. And, yeah. and she was a hairdresser. I do and, that. <laughs> what's that? I do recall that. I'll remember her name. But I remember her saying she was like a. She was a hairdresser, and and she's like, and now I'm mom's, and that's just the way it is. Like, that's the way we have to be in order for order to be maintained. So she basically like she needs to run this club so that she can keep the populace satisfied. I actually looked her up on IMDb to see if I had recognized her from anything, and. Surprise, she hasn't been in anything else I've seen. But she was in something called uh, Tantala's Fat Rack, which I thought was funny. Yeah, I actually just got a DVD from Alpha Blue Archives that's a collection of her films. I haven't watched any of them yet, but I'll keep you posted. Sick. Yeah, her name's Tantala Ray. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, she has like a giant afro and she her... Her outfits are very avant-garde, just like everyone's in this movie. But I think those are the major characters that we need to know about. Oh, the only other person is Johnny Rico. So Johnny Rico is like this legendary performer who Moms is really excited to have gotten. And he reminds me of... He kind of looks like Ian McCulloch from Echo and the Bunnymen, if you're familiar with them. He wears sunglasses like McCulloch does throughout the whole thing and like a very new wave suit. I think he looks like an Arnold impersonator in a ter Terminator porn parody. Yeah, I can see that. Also, every time his name came up, all I could think of was like, you know, the only good bug is a dead bug. Or like, you know, come on, you apes, you want to live forever? I have no idea what you're talking about. Everybody fights, nobody quits. If you don't do your job, I'll kill you myself. No I'm idea. I'm Buenos Aires, and I say kill them all. No. Starship Troopers. Oh, I've actually never watched it. What? Yeah, I've I've <laughs> read the book. Real? 
I've read the book, but I've never seen the movie. Uh, I mean, they're both good for completely different reasons. But wow, really? Yeah, no, never seen it. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to force you to watch that the next time you're down here. Okay, all right, I'm, I'm down. So I think we've we've covered all the major characters. Uh, let's talk about the next big set piece. So we've got a naked secretary in the foreground, and she's typing or pretending to type on a keyboard. And then there's a man who has a giant pencil on his head. And there's a lady laying on a desk, and she's like working out, like doing bicep curls with a phone. And they start doing like a dance, like mimicking sex moves. And the the woman in the front, the secretary, she just keeps saying, do you want me to type a memo? So what do you think about this one? Trying to decipher the meaning of some of these scenes is like, it's like treading into mental quicksand. Like the best thing you can do is to just stay away. So I have a couple thoughts about that. One, <laughs> I think I think these scenes just come out of Rent's dreams imagination and they're mainly here because he thought they looked cool. But the way I think about this is you know how people become desensitized to porn and they have to search out like more and more extreme things. Yeah, I think that's not necessarily extreme, but it different. Could, sure. It's got to yeah, stay fresh. Bizarre. Like so, oh new fresh yeah so imagine you could not have sex and the only sexual stimulation you got was mental then you would you might want increasingly strange and interesting performances like it's not the erotic content that people are necessarily craving because they can't have sex but it is this avant-garde new wave side of things so there's a historical precedence for governments releasing pornography like there was a point in japan's history i think during the edo period where erotic woodblock prints were distributed by ruling powers because at the time Men were greatly outnumbering women, and it was an attempt to temper criminal activity that could result from the male populations like burgeoning like sexual frustrations. So you can make the assumption that this this whole cafe flesh thing is like a government subsidy, right? Like they're yeah pumping the re- the money and the, the the resources into it, but like. Look at the con the, the quality of the content coming out of here, right? Like this man is a pencil. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I would watch I would watch this performance any day before I watched actual pornography. I would rather see this. Cause this is interesting to me. But I had two thoughts during, like two, a, a few things stood out to me during this scene. One, we keep getting flashes to the faces in the audience, and I love these. First, because I think they found really interesting pe- looking people to be in this movie, but I also love their reaction shots. I think they're perfect. They're like numb and desensitized, but slightly curious and bewildered. 
maybe I'm projecting too much onto their faces, but perhaps I, I see it. <laughs> uh, I remember seeing a lot of shaking heads as if, why, why am I here? Yeah, well, and at one point, the Michelle Bauer character says that the the babies crossed a line for her, that they were a little too silly. So, <laughs> so. Yeah, that, that was the turning point. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least there's some self-awareness, right? The fog machine is always going, right? The entire inside of Cafe Flesh is just entren entrenched with fog. And I don't know if it's that or the costuming or the music, but there are actually some scenes in this movie where I started to think, this is kind of creepy. Like I was a little bit freaked out. Like for whatever reason, the secretary looking into the camera and saying, do you want me to type you a memo? Like it was almost like a jump scare in a horror movie. I mean... So, some people like that's that scared feeling <laughs> but did you experience that at all like did you think there there was anything frightening about this film not in the slightest oh interesting oh, sorry like i think rent's dream could have made a horror movie and done a great job i mean if i was maybe tripping on hallucinogens maybe i'd have a different a different viewpoint but Watching this movie alone and sober, like yeah, no, I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't think it, this this film really roused any feelings in me. So between each of these really outlandish set pieces, Max comes on stage and like berates the audience more, but he keeps dressing up in different outfits and doing different impersonations. Like at one point he's dressed like a little girl on a swing. At one point he's a vampire in a coffin and he's talking like Bella Lugosi. Um, at one point he's doing a Marlon Brando impression. Like, did you just think this was obnoxious and annoying? I mean, he's just like a, a vaudeville like performer, right? Yeah. That's a good comparison. He starts playing the trumpet at one point. Yeah, so he's just like the front man. One other side plot that fits in here is Moms really likes birds, and she has a bunch of taxidermied birds in her office. And at one point, a guy shows up who wants to be let in, but the door, the like the bouncer won't let him in until he reveals that he has brought Moms a live bird. And this is really exciting to everybody. Like, there are people who don't s seem to have seen a bird before. I thought this was interesting. Like, it reminded me of the scene in Blade Runner where where they talk about the owl being real. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, and, and I agree. There are similar vibes, but I'm just making sure that never comes back into the film, right? No, aside from seeing the birds in her office. You think she just straight taxidermied it and put it on the wall? <laughs> I don't know. I wondered about that. I, I think that it's just um, rare to find a live one. So maybe when they die, she has them taxidermied. Yeah, they, they don't really paint a, a, a pretty picture of what's going on outside. So the next, the next big set piece is there's one woman chained to a wall and then there's another sitting on like a little cage and Max's head is inside of it. And then there's these women wearing masks and they're like 
dancing or grinding over top of one another. And there's all these noises of gunfire and sirens in the background. And the women are wearing like American flag underwear. Well, one of them's wearing USA underwear and the other one's wearing USSR, like Soviet themed underwear. Oh, I didn't even notice that. Okay, gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. This this was the worst one because of what you're talking about the, the 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 sounds in the background it's like this it's like unending cacophony of air raid sirens marching soldiers uh automatic gunfire and, well, and the worst part of all is that max is like clown cackling the whole time so i think i think the point of this scene is unquestionably not erratic right nothing about this scene is trying to be erratic so is this like uh, two two behemoth militarized empires basically getting each other off on the world stage while ignoring the collateral carnage to the civilian populations? Like what what what's the imagery here? I, I really don't know. I don't know that there is any. I just think it's like all those images like this was in the midst of the cold war i think all those images were swirling around in rinse dreams mind and then he just sort of vomited them onto the screen have you seen the second and third films no so rinse dream did make a uh, cafe flesh two and three in the 90s but i have not seen either of them i've heard they're weirder than this i mean that's not really surprising I've heard they lean more in like even further into the avant-garde and like employ his dialogue a lot more and his style of dialogue, like the max really exemplifies it. Like not so much what he's saying, but the rhythm that he speaks in like Rinstream almost has the same or has a similar writing style as David Mamet where like there's a particular way to pull off saying his dialogue and I think the guy who plays Max does it but nobody else in the movie does yeah I did not get that impression at all in this film well I think you need to see more of his work especially Dr. Caligari to like really get that this is what I was talking about earlier. It's, it, this is a this is a this is a teenage Tupelo situation. Like I feel like I had to see like three other films before I get this shit. Yeah, I don't know. The next big set piece, we've got hands reaching up out of the floor and they're snapping their fingers. And there's these girls that are posing with telephones, like payphones. This is the first one that Angel is in because she was taken by the enforcers. And she's like being slid around on a table and there's another girl trapped underneath it. And there's a guy wearing a telephone mask. And the the point of this scene seems to be that Nick is watching Lana really carefully and he's beginning to see, I think, like this is one of the few times where I think this actor does an okay job. He's beginning to suspect that she's more into it than she lets on. And Max has kind of suggested that maybe she's actually a sex positive. And she's also in hiding because he caught her backstage masturbating. So we can begin to see that she is kind of letting loose and Nick is really beginning to suspect. 
I think of all the avant-garde scenes, this one is probably the most the most modern because it, it represents telecommunication companies just absolutely railing the consumer. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> Rent's dream was in advertising, right? Like he had a background in advertising. So your pun aside, I can see how things like that would have played into his his set pieces, like these bits and pieces of advertising. So there's another really good example of his dialogue and somebody delivering it well. Nick is at the bar right after the scene has happened and he's upset about Lana acting weird. And the bartender asks him if he wants a chaser with his drink. And Nick says, do you have a razor blade? And the bartender says this. He says, no, I never shave. Collect animals, though. Had a hamster once. I named her Ruth. Bugger bit me on the thumb, and it swelled up like a peach. I had to dump her. Made the thing a little sweater and put ball bearings in the pocket. Where I come from, they call that a Chicago overcoat. <laughs> and I, lo- I love this, this um monologue if you can call it that and and the delivery did, what did you think of this uh, i just thought it was just like passing scene really it didn't like i'm sorry no i'm again i'm sticking the mud for this episode uh, but, you know stick in the mud would, would probably be a good theme for an avant-garde uh cafe flesh situation sure So I think there's another scene that's worth mentioning. While Nick is at the bar, Max is really giving him a hard time and basically saying, like, before the bomb, you know, people picked on me and now I'm on top and I'm not going to let you forget it. But Moms overhears this and she has apparently got on to Max before about berating the audience and she says he's in serious trouble and she makes him recite the poem and he's like he keeps saying no max tries to get out of this he tries to stand up to moms yeah he's like no i'm not gonna do it let's go back to your office we'll discuss this like adults like and and she keeps saying like no Uh, i think she says heal like like he's a dog so eventually he, he gets down on his knees and he recites the poem. And it's, I'm little Maxie, the star of the show, but under my boxers, nothing will grow. There's posies and neggies, but I'm in between because I lost my weapon in World War III. And then he cries. And this is clearly really humiliating to him. Aww. But see, this is this is where we find out that he's not really a positive or a negative, that he's like stuck in between the worlds. And this is where we see the source of like his humiliation. And we see the humiliation of Nick too, that Nick feels impotent and like he can't he can no longer be intimate with his wife. And the same sort of shame is in max during this scene i mean it's a silly scene like it's 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 kind of dumb it it, i guess it's uh, trying to be humorous but i do really think it's revealing about his character 
that he's compensating. Well, yeah, and that he's... It gives us a clue to his emotional state. Like, it explains why he has the persona that he does. I suppose even though uh, he is a very unlikable character, he is the most fleshed out. Oh, for sure. Still don't like him. So the last set piece, I think, is the least interesting. But this is Johnny Rico, so like he doesn't need a set. There are sort of scary-looking trees in the background and lots of fog and darkness, and there's a woman off to the side with like a salon blow dryer over her head. She's reading a magazine, and then Angel is on the bed with Johnny. And this scene proves to be too much for Lana, who we know by now is really a sex positive. And Max comes over to like whisper in her ear and tease her. And this gets really dreamlike. We see her kind of walking towards the stage as people try to grab her, including Nick, and then other people like wave her on. And the enforcers are there. And everyone starts waving her forward and she goes up on stage and she just gets in on the scene. And Nick is like horrified. I like Nick's situation in this movie, even though I think he's a bad actor, like I really sympathize with him. Like, I think this is really painful. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's all I got. (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't know i really felt for him in this scene and i was really invested in the story i I mean the 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 problem here is that there's no narrative payoff this just happens and then uh well i guess (laughs) max gets like strangled by a zombie and then the movie ends well, yeah, Nick leaves, and then the movie ends on a on a freeze frame of Lana um, reacting to Johnny, to Johnny Rico. So, yeah, this ending is really abrupt. But at the same time, I read a review, and I kind of agree with this, where the guy was like, this is the perfect way to end the film because we stay on that face, like that face that's causing Nick such torture right like i think it's an artistic choice oh yeah for sure it does not feel like they 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 left this movie unfinished or anything this was the intent oh yeah for sure and then we get to hear the theme music over the credits which is kind of jarring right because that ending i feel like is really emotional and sad and dark and then the theme music is really like bright and exciting So that was a little um, jarring to me. Bob was the same way, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's true. Not not, uh, unknown territory for us. So I I know you've kind of um, already established your position on this movie, but you want to give final thoughts and a a rating out of four? Man, what to say about this? Um, Like this entire film feels like uh, a video exhibit that would be stuffed in the closet at a modern art museum and it's one of those experiences that's that's meant to be endured for like maybe 10 minutes 
and then you move on to the next room that's holding uh, an exhibit of like man-made spider webs made out of pasta or whatever's in modern art museums nowadays. I, I don't think this is really an ideal movie to just sit down and, and wholly watch. I am pro maybe this movie is just not for me. I'm really missing something here. If you are into extreme, like extreme avant-garde stuff, this is going to be right down your alley. But for me, I'm, I'm just going to go with one star. All right. So if I have a complaint about this movie, it's the acting. I think with the exception of Max melodramatic, the acting in this movie is, is, as I said, average to awful. It's, you know, you, what you just said about like, if you're into the avant-garde theater stuff, this will be right up your alley. It's right up my alley. Like visually, musically, the set pieces, the costuming, the choreography, um, the setting with the fog. Like this movie to me is firing on all cylinders when it comes to the visual, the visuals and the mood. And I think the story is interesting. It's simple, but I think it does raise interesting philosophical questions. And I do actually get emotionally involved in it. And I think that there's some real satire going on here where Rent's Dream is really saying something about the audiences that watch adult films and critiquing them and, and saying that despite the fact that he'd go on to make other adult films, I think he's saying that you cannot just be a passive participant. Like it's impossible to be consumer of pornography to do so leaves you just as unsatisfied as the people in the film. And I think that's an interesting point to make. Uh, it's not like super deep, but for the type of film this is, like that's way above and beyond what was necessary. This fails as erotica. Like it, I, I don't find it remotely erotic, which could be a failing like there are definitely some non-pornographic films that I do see an erotic side to, um, like what's his name who made all the naked vampire movies um, in France, uh, Jean Rollin. Um, the films of Jean Rollin I find hugely erotic, and they're not pornographic. It's just he knows how to shoot something erotically, and at least at this point, I don't think Renstream did. Um, Night Dreams is the same way where like there's some really interesting visuals going on in there, but there's even less of a story in that one. But these images like the rat milkman and the caveman babies and the pencil head and the scary secretary, like these are images that will never leave my mind. And to make images that indelible and that impactful, uh, I think really takes some skill and artistry. So this is three stars for me. Maybe my preconceptions are holding me back, but I am sticking to my guns. Well, I would encourage you to watch, watch Dr. Caligari and then see if that changes your position on this film at all. Because that's more of a mainstream film. 
Um, I mean, I'm a more mainstream film for my pedestrian interests. No, I mean, it's mainstream insofar as it's not pornographic. Hmm. It's, it's more like a, imagine like a breeding of Forbidden Zone and Rocky Horror Picture Show. And you have something like what Dr. Caligari is. Perhaps in a future episode, maybe. All right. So for next week, how would you feel about doing Messiah of Evil? Yep, works for me. Cool. So I am super excited to talk about this movie, and I hope that you don't hate it. I I think that this is a criminally underappreciated film, although the people who have seen it usually love it. Um, It's very artsy. It's a very artsy horror movie, but it has a very interesting story behind it that I think will make for an an interesting episode. And you may recognize um, the the main, not the main female, but one of the main female characters in this movie is played by the the actress who played Jermaine in The Baby. All right, I'm a little more hyped now. Yeah, yeah, so you'll get to enjoy her her presence. Is she just as scary? No, but I wouldn't say she's normal either. Hmm. This I'll take it. I'll take it. This movie is famous for two scenes in particular that are seen as really terrifying for the time period. And I still think they're scary. Like they're not gory or violent or anything. This is a mood movie and it's an artsy movie, but it does really create an atmosphere of, of fear. Like, do you, does it feel scary to you to be on the beach alone at night? I don't think I've ever been on the beach alone at night. I've always had one other person with me. Well, even then, does it feel eerie to you? A little, but you know, I'm, I'm reminded of this time that I was visiting um, Lee Island in Florida. It's uh, basically a beach resort and it was not quite nighttime, but it was late evening. And when walking back along what was originally an empty stretch of sand, it was then covered with hundreds of blue beached starfish with they had like eight or nine legs a piece and that was a little unsettling i this is a tangent but when i was a kid i i liked reading horror books and i cannot remember what the name of this book was and if anyone recognizes what i'm about to describe tell me please but it started out with someone by the water. I think they were on a beach, but it could have been like a pier or a dock. And something reached out of the water and ripped their arm off. And I was young when I read this and it terrified me. And I actually put the book down and like didn't finish it um, because it freaked me out so badly. I think I was probably like, it's probably like eight years old. And ever since then, whenever I'm on the beach at night, I think of that and I imagine these hands reaching up from the water to like tear my limbs off. And I think there's a natural eeriness to the beach at night anyway, like regardless of my strange book memory. 
the silence except for the waves, the coolness, the sort of salt air, the the breeze, the way it touches your skin, like all of that kind of freaks me out um, in a good way. It's an enjoyable sensation. But this entire movie creates that same feeling. It does take place in a beachside town, so that's part of it. But it also just captures the same mood as being on the beach alone at night. So that's my introductory recommendation for people who have not seen Messiah of Evil to check it out before next week. It's um, the, the original VHS tape is kind of expensive if you can find it, but the, it's available all over the internet. Um, I think it's in the public domain. All right, but that's it for this week and Cafe Flesh. Leland, do you have any last words? Thank you for your continued support. Yes, Thank you to everybody. Congratulations to the people who won stuff in the giveaway. Uh, I hope that you enjoy um, those gifts and we'll do something else like that in the future. Um, more and more people are listening to us every day, like way more people are listening than I ever thought would. So we appreciate all of you. And lots of people have been reaching out and you know, being active on Instagram and we really appreciate hearing from you guys. And so keep listening. Um, let us know if you have any recommendations, thoughts, reviews, criticisms, hate mail. We'll take all of it. Um, yeah, we'll read hate mail. Yeah, uh, we'll read it on the air. <laughs> we'll read it in the episode. And if it's legit criticism, we'll try to improve. Um, hopefully the audio issues um, have been improved. Uh, so with all that said, if you do follow us on any podcast channels, please rate, review, and subscribe, um, and that will help us out. And until next week and Messiah of Evil, I hope everyone has a great, have a happy week, and we'll talk to you later. Bye. Ha 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 